0: It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and deals with women in the worship service. Pastor Steve has a lot to tell us today, so I'll stop here and let him have the microphone.
1: Questions that we need to answer. I think there are some loose ends we need to bring together, and so we want to do that tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. But rather by means of good works as befits or as suits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint. It's a book that I'm reading now by a man by the name of David Nicholas. And the book is entitled, What's a Woman to Do in the Church? It's a very fine book. It's an excellent book. It's a very biblically solid book. There's a chapter in there that intrigued me, so I read it this week. Was Paul a Woman Hater? That's the title of it. And here's how he opens that chapter. He says, and I quote, The woman who had entered the Christian bookstore appeared rather pleasant at first. She had smiled and returned the clerk's good morning. But after browsing in the biography section for a few minutes, her eyes focused on the book... Paul, man of steel and velvet. As she leafed through the book, her face became progressively clouded with concern. The once pleasant attitude faded into uh, obvious displeasure. She rushed to the clerk, held up the book, and vigorously protested some uh, copy on its back cover. What's this author trying to pull by saying that Paul had a warm, compassionate nature? I don't buy that idea for a minute. How could the Apostle Paul have been warm and compassionate when he said so many derogatory things about women? Why, the Apostle Paul was a woman-hater. The clerk asked this question, but wasn't Paul the one who wrote the great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13? Sure, the customer shot back. He had no choice but to write about love after all the demeaning things he had written about women. Well, you know, poor Paul. Paul gets it from everybody. He gets it from uh, the rabbis who say Paul was just a rabbi. He invented Christianity. It wasn't Jesus. He gets it from other people who say he was wrong and this and that. And then on top of top of it all, he gets it from women, and sometimes Christian women who who blast Paul and call him a woman hater. Down through the years, he has been the most misunderstood man. I'm convinced of that. There is nobody in all the world, in all the ages, that has been more misunderstood than the Apostle Paul, especially in the area of his views on women. Paul has often, and I mean this very often, been accused of writing demeaning things about women. I have some books in my library that will basically say that. But the Bible doesn't support their accusation. Let me give you some examples, and, and we've gone over this before, I might add. Maybe not all of this, but some of these things. In Romans chapter 16, Paul deals with many, many women. In fact, the chapter is filled with Paul's warm appreciation for the women who helped him in the ministry. It is not the writing of a man who hated women. It's the writing of a, of a man who appreciated women who shared and helped in the work of the Lord. In Second Timothy chapter 1... Verse 5, he writes this, writing to Timothy, his last letter, he says, I am, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it's in you as well. Here was the greatest compliment the Apostle Paul could pay anyone, whether it be a man or a woman. That sincere faith dwells in them. Later on, he'll tell in our, in our study of Second Timothy, he'll say, Timothy, from a little child, you've understood the Scriptures because your mother has, and grandmother have poured it into you. From a child, you've understood the scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So what a compliment. It's not, Paul wasn't a woman hater. Paul also taught a young Christian leader to, how to treat a woman with respect and courtesy and honor. If you look at 1 Timothy 5, you'll see in verse 2, Paul says this. The older woman, says, Timothy, here's how to, you're, you're to treat the older women." Treat them as mothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. And here is Paul telling young Timothy, this young spiritual leader, how to treat older women, how to treat younger women, how to treat widows. And so he is speaking here out of a heart of compassion for women. We must not forget also that it was the Apostle Paul who taught men how to properly treat their wives. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 28, it's the Apostle Paul who says that, that men ought to treat their wives like Christ treats the church. They, he, they need to sacrifice for them. They need to be concerned about their purity. They need to be concerned about laying down their lives for them and leading them in a godly, proper way. And so rather than express contempt for women, Just the opposite is true. Paul really led the way, though certainly others uh, reinforce this. Peter speaks so, so well of women as well. But it was the Apostle Paul who really led the way in teaching that the church ought to create an, an environment and a climate of love that demonstrates the true value of a woman. It's really a sad thing that Paul has been accused of hating women when indeed he had more compassion and understanding of their value than perhaps any one of his time. Now when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is is also expressing love for women. There are those who say well, Paul is very harsh in this chapter. He forbids things. He's strong. He he words it in such a way that it's very blunt and direct and it doesn't come across as loving. Once again, the opposite is true. Opposite is true. Paul is still expressing love for women because he's telling uh, the church by way of Timothy telling the church at Ephesus not to allow a woman to function in an area that God never designed her to function in. I mean that is love. Love is is wanting the best for somebody and the best for a woman is not to be in leadership over a man. And so Paul's words are the words of a friend to women, not an enemy. He's calling for the church to forbid a woman from entering a sphere of, of activity and ministry that she wasn't created or suited To fulfill, and that is love, regardless of what people might say. Now, the Apostle Paul is basically writing to correct two problems in the uh, church, in the worship service concerning women. Number one problem was this, women who came to the worship service dressed to draw attention to themselves by wearing seductive and suggestive uh, clothing and also apparel that apparently flaunted their wealth. So I think there's, there's two problems in the sense of clothing, though it's one overarching problem. The problem is they were coming to, to really have clothing on that would draw men's attention to themselves. It would also uh, be used to impress others, and they just flaunted their wealth. That was the first problem, and that's what Paul has to deal with. The second problem was that apparently there were women in that church taking on the role of authoritative teacher in the worship service. There were women, whether they were called elders or not, we don't know. Uh, perhaps that's the case. Uh, 1 Timothy Three, verse two, would lead us to believe that when Paul has to say the husband of one wife, and I think there's more to it than just that, but perhaps there were women elders in the church. If not, there certainly were women who were taking on the role of a teacher, teaching men and women. And so Paul corrects these two problems, and that's really the background of verses 9 through 15. And he corrects them In a very interesting way, he gives us, as he corrects these problems at Ephesus, which is not the problems that other churches necessarily have, but in correcting them, Paul gives us guidelines on how a worship service is to be and specifically how women are to conduct themselves in the worship service. And that's why I've called this this series and this uh, series of messages Women in Worship. Now, what connects Verse 9, with the rest of the chapter, is verse 8. Therefore, I want the men, and he's speaking here of the males, not men in the generic sense of mankind, but I want the men in every place to pray. What he's saying is when the men come, they are to lead in prayer. He has just taught them that that the church is responsible to pray for the lost. So he says when the men come... In every place is, a, is an expression, meaning when you gather for worship. When the men come, when the church comes to gather in every place to pray, he said, I want the men to lead in prayer. They are to lift up holy hands. That is to say, they, were, they are to be godly. They are to be pure in their lives. They are not to have, he says, wrath and dissension. Godly men are to lead the worship service in prayer. And then he connects that by, by explaining what the women are to do. They're, the men's godliness is to be evidence in their lives. And the women are also who come to worship to be godly. So you have the men being godly in leadership. You have the women being godly, but not in a leadership capacity. And so I think the real theme of this, of this passage is really what, what are the evidences of godliness and purity in women who worship. That, I think, is the point of these verses. And we said, number one, that a woman, a Christian woman, evidences her godliness by her appearance. Notice verse 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, I don't want to just repeat what we've already covered. But the basic thought of these verses... And if you were not here for that, I would encourage you for the other messages to get the tapes on it. But what Paul is saying basically is this. Women who are godly, who come to worship, dress appropriately. They dress appropriately. This will vary from culture to culture. In our culture, uh, we would not say some of the things that Paul said in verse 9. As far as the pearls and, and the jewelry and all of that. But we would say what Paul said is the basic principle of these two words, modestly and discreetly. That's the, that's the eternal truth there. Modestly means that she is to dress with a sense of shame. And the shame is not that she's embarrassed to come into the worship service. That's, that's not the thought here. But the shame is, is this. It, it, it shames her to think that by her clothing that a man would be tempted and drawn to her. That there's nothing in her appearance that would uh, elicit the wrong response from a man. And she has a sense of shame. In fact, the authorized version translates this, shamefacedness. There is a sense of shrinking back from a thought like that. It's almost a thought of, heaven forbid that I would dress that way. That's, that ought to, ought to be the appearance of a woman. She ought to dress with that in mind. Secondly, it is discreetly. And I don't think it just means wisely, uh, although that. Is also involved there, but it means with a rein on her passions. There is a soberness there, there is a, dis- a discretion used. She is to dress in such a way that she has a rein and a control and a handle on her passions. And in verse 10, what he says for those who profess godliness, the adornment that she should have should be that which concentrates on good works. Her preoccupation is not what she wears. Her preoccupation is the good works. Her good works really become her adornment. So, number one is that the woman in, in worship must evidence her godliness by her appearance. And that's important because that reflects the heart. Secondly, by her activity. And this is where what we looked at last time we met to cover First Timothy. And I really feel like we need... I don't want to leave you hanging. There are some issues we need to cover so as to reinforce certain things. Verse 11 and 12 tell us what her activity is to be and what it is not to be. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But he says, I do not allow, I forbid a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but he says once again to remain quiet. Her activity in the worship service is to be that of a learner not an authoritative teacher. Now we went into into great detail with this last time and I think it's very easy to jump down to verse 12 and just say oh she's not to teach. But remember Paul first of all said she is to she is to receive instruction quietly. That's very important she is to be a learner. She is to take in the doctrine of the word of God just like a man is. She is not just to be taught womanly things. She is to be taught doctrine. Her function in the church is not just to be in the nursery. It's not just to have uh, be in charge of potluck dinners. She is to be a theologian. She is to be a learner. And the word here is a disciple. She is to be discipled. Now, it's very interesting, as I said last time, the word quietly. Some interpret this in two extremes. There are some who say, well, quietly um, means that she just ought to have a spirit that's unruffled. So it's all right to teach men if she just does it in a quiet manner. That's not what the passage is saying. There are others who go the opposite extreme and say her silence means she's never to utter a peep, a sound in the worship service. That's not true either. Silence does not mean she can't talk or sing or give a testimony or even ask questions when it is appropriate. That's not what this passage is saying. When the pastor teacher would call for a question and answer time, women as well as men can certainly do that. What does he mean then by, I don't allow, or she's not, or she is to learn quietly, receive instruction with entire submissiveness. It is qualified and explained by verse 12. The quietness is in the role of not being a teacher. But I do not allow a woman to teach. That answers the question, what does silence mean? It doesn't mean that she can't sneeze in church, that she can't ever say anything. It means she's not to teach. That's all. And what is, what is it when Paul says or exercise or rather submissiveness? It means she's not to exercise authority over a man. So verse 12 really is the way of interpreting verse 11. Paul gave us two verses that, are, that basically explain each other. She's not to exercise authority over men. Now, what we want to do is look at some new ground. Because I want you to understand that what Paul is taught here is the teaching of the Bible from the beginning to the end. It is the teaching of the Old Testament and the teaching of the New Testament. What Paul has written is consistent. A lot of people don't realize that, and I, and I want to explain it to you. First of all, in the Old Testament, there are no women kings ever listed. You will not find a woman king ever listed. You might find the woman who usurped the leadership in Israel... There is one woman who uh, tried to kill off all the men so that she could be the king, but she is not listed ever as a king. There's no woman kings ever listed in, in the genealogies and in other places. There are no women priests. In all the Old Testament, you will not find a woman priest. They were the religious leaders of Israel. They were the true religious leaders. There are no women priests. No woman ever wrote an Old Testament book. You might say, wait a minute, what about Esther and Ruth? They are books named after women, but they didn't author those books. There's no woman, and this we want to look at for a few minutes, there is no woman who ever had an ongoing prophetic ministry. Now, I'm not saying that there are no women who never spoke for God. There were women who spoke for God. Some even call prophetesses, but None of these women, and I'm going to mention a few in just a moment, none of these women ever had an ongoing prophetic ministry. They were isolated incidents. For instance, Miriam, you don't need to turn there, you might want to mark it down, but in Exodus 15, verse 20 and 21, Miriam, the sister of Moses, is called a prophetess. Why? Because she spoke the word of God, to our knowledge, on one occasion, and that was to women, not to men. Then there's the woman named Deborah in Judges chapter four, verse four. Uh, the only time that we're told that she ever spoke revelation was to a man by the name of Barak. The only time. We know of no other time where she spoke for the Lord. In Second Kings twenty-two fourteen, I think it's paralleled in Second Chronicles thirty-four twenty-two. There is Huldah, and she spoke to Hilkiah the priest and that only once she spoke the word of god then there is Noadiah you've heard of Noah but probably not heard of Noadiah she in uh, Nehemiah 6:14 is called a false prophetess and she is one who spoke against the lord so we immediately eliminate her from any consideration at all then in Isaiah 8:3 did you know that Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess why because she gave birth to a child whose name had prophetic meaning. And that is the only reason. So you see, even in the Old Testament where it mentions a prophetess, there's no woman who ever had an ongoing prophetic ministry. If they did speak for God, it was certainly proper, it was right, and they were isolated incidences. Now what about the New Testament? This, this gives people more problems. No elder is a woman in the New Testament. No pastor teacher is a woman in the New Testament. No evangelist is a woman. No apostle was a woman. There are no women preachers. You go through the book of Acts and you find no women who gave sermons as Peter did on the day of Pentecost. There's no woman who wrote a New Testament letter. But someone says, wait a minute, what about Philip's daughters? Philip had four daughters who were called prophetesses. In Acts chapter 21 Verse nine, we read about them, let's, let's look there for a moment. Acts twenty one nine. now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. In the Greek language it says, who prophesied. They, they are not really officially called prophetesses, they are more, uh, it would be accurate to translate this, who prophesied. All right, what do we do with that? We believe it, okay? We don't know how they prophesied. To prophesy is simply to speak forth the word of God. It is to proclaim God's word. Women ought to do that. We're not saying that women can't do that. They just are not to do that in the assembly when the church meets. They're not to have authority over men. But we don't know a whole lot about how they carried on their prophesying. We don't know how much, uh, how much of this they did. We don't know to who they did it. They may have just prophesied one time. We don't know how or when. or We don't know if they spoke in unison. Maybe they, they all spoke together and gave a prophecy. We don't know that. It may have been only one time, and it may have even been to women. It may not have been. But they certainly didn't get up in the church assembly and teach men when the church came together to worship. There are other women who, are, are, uh, who prophesied in the New Testament. There is Dear Anna Anna, who was a widow for many years in Luke chapter two, she was in the temple and she spoke. You know why she's called a prophetess? Because she spoke to everybody who came there about the Messiah who would come. And remember, God granted Anna and Simeon the great pleasure and privilege of, of being there when Mary and Joseph brought the Lord Jesus, the Messiah there. But Anna is called a prophetess because she spoke about the Messiah and she said the Messiah is coming. That's certainly all right. Even Mary... The mother of our Lord spoke prophetically when she spoke forth God's word. And I believe it's Luke chapter 2 or, or Luke 1. She spoke the, what we call the uh, Magnificat. And she spoke forth praises and she, she uttered prophetic truth. That's certainly fine. But she didn't get up in the church and teach men. Then let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, that's, that's the communion chapter. But there's something else here. Now, we've gone over this in past messages about the women in head coverings and so forth, and I don't need to cover that now. But in verse 5, Paul writes about women who are praying and prophesying. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Hey, let's just stop there. That's all we need to look at right now because the point that some people make is that, look, here were women who were prophesying. And this is talking about the church, they say. Is it? I would question that. Is it? Many people believe that, but may I suggest to you that if you look at verse 17 and 18, especially verse 18, for in the first place, look at that, in the first place, when you come together. Well, people say, well, what do you mean? He was was talking about women prophesying in the church doesn't say women prophesying in the church. May I suggest to you that when Paul says in verse 17 and 18, in the first place, when you come together, I want to tell you how to conduct your worship service. He is talking there for the first time about when the church comes together. I believe that when he refers to women praying and prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, he is not talking about the church service. He goes on, beginning in verse 17 and 18, talking about the church service, and that's where he's talking about celebrating the Lord's Supper. But up until this point, he is not talking about the church service. He's talking about women speaking for God. That could be, let's put it in our day and age, it could be in a home Bible study, it could be in our women's ministry, it could be in a Sunday school teaching other women or children. But nowhere does this passage say in verse 5 about women prophesying that she's doing this in the church. So that should answer that.
0: We are just about out of time already, so I won't comment other than to say that I hope you can be back with us for the next Verse by Verse and the conclusion of Pastor Steve Kreloff's message on women in worship, a series based on 1 Timothy chapter 2. Pastor Steve serves at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. To learn more about Verse by Verse, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. In my overseas work, I have visited some churches where the services are pretty chaotic. I suppose that happens here, too, in some places. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will share some insights that will help us avoid confusion in our own worship services. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. We've been talking about the many names of Jesus that we read throughout Scripture. And we mentioned earlier about Jesus as Savior, and I want to take just a little bit to talk about what that means. When the Bible calls Jesus a Savior, it is talking about Jesus being the one who can save us from our sins. There are many kinds of saviors, but only one who can save us for eternity. Acts. 5.